Hey, what's up, y'all? It's Will with Schedule Fly, and I had a great, great time this week with Eric Montagni. Eric is the executive chef at Locals Oyster Bar in Raleigh, North Carolina, and they're in a food hall, um, and it's a really cool setup. I had never been to a food hall. I know we've got customers that are in them. I would not been in one. We had a great time. We sat up on the mezzanine upstairs and just hung out and talked about hospitality, talked about his career. And gosh, Eric is just a great dude. He has one of those auras where he's just, his eyes kind of are smiling, if you will, if you know what I mean. He's just a good dude. He projects a uh, very positive aura. And we talked about all kinds of stuff from, you know, one of the things being really interesting is some new legislation in North Carolina that's going to prohibit uh, inshore commercial fishing in the Pamlico Sound um, to, you know, in the effort of sustainability. But, you know, we talked about whether that's been the issue or if other things have been the issue. So it was a really interesting conversation. I was learning a lot because I don't understand that very much. And he, he uh, and I rapped about that. We rapped about, um, you know, them going from uh, just in the last year since they've opened, since January 1st, they went from six employees to 70 employees. Think about that. Rapid, rapid growth. Uh, just there at that one location, by the way. So they've experienced some really unique um, challenges and they're handling them very well. And I'm just really excited to have had the opportunity to speak to Eric. We are very excited at Schedule Fly to serve Eric and his team. Oh, and the other thing we talked about is that he's getting into, uh, they want to use all of the fish. So not just, you know, the filet, but we talked about how they're using the heart and the liver and the collar and even the skin. In fact, my dogs are sitting with me right now as I'm recording this in Charlotte. And they just had some, uh, the remaining two dried and cured fish skins uh, that are dog treats that they're making that Eric gave me. And my dogs love them. So I'm going to have to find a way to get some more from them. But uh, he is he is doing charcuterie with fish. I mean, it's really cool, and he's very excited about it, so it's fun to talk to him about that as well. Nevertheless, we start the episode uh, with me. It kind of dives in real quick, me talking about having just had some of their food. I had a blue crab roll and hush puppies that were fantastic right before we started the interview, and it was a lot of fun. Y'all enjoy, and we'll have more soon. See ya. I just had the uh, blue crab oyster roll. Is that what it's? Uh, just a blue crab roll. Blue no, crab. No oysters. No, no yeah. oyster. Why did I say blue crab <laughs> oyster roll? What the hell am I thinking? Blue crab roll and the uh, hush puppies, which were, that was good. Thanks. It was really, really good. I ate it way too fast to fully appreciate, <laughs> I think, because it was damn good. It goes down quick. Oh, man. So you're, um, okay, so you were born in Miami. Yep. And you were there till you were about 12, and yep. you've moved around a bunch since then. Tell me just how did you get started in the uh, culinary world? So cooking was always a big part of my family. My grandmother had a restaurant uh, right before I was born, so after that she cooked a lot at home. My dad and my mom cooked a lot. My mom baked a lot. So cooking's always been a big part of my family. We had big cookouts and did whole pigs and whole fish. Fishing was mm. also a big part of my family. 
my dad worked on a commercial fishing boat, and so I used to go out on the boat with them. We went out fishing all the time, and so it was just I kind of grew up in the culture of cooking a lot and eating a lot and oh, fishing. Oh, man, you were getting some really fresh freaking seafood. Oh, God. Yeah, yeah we we're, were very lucky being down. We fished out of the Keys a lot. Oh. We were lucky being down there. Oh, man. Do you get it out of the... Um like Gulf Stream down there is that is that where like isn't that where really yeah. really fresh yeah and so the, we're very lucky in South Florida that the Gulf Stream is only about three miles offshore uh, here in, in North Carolina it's about 25 or 30 miles offshore yeah and so you gotta run a bit further okay uh, but Miami you can be in the Gulf Stream in you know 20 minutes 30 minutes why is seafood from the Gulf Stream better or fresher or more abundant like what's the it's not uh necessarily better fresher okay it is more abundant it's It's like it's a migratory pattern for predatory fish and so they're really taking the gulf stream moving up and down the atlantic they're using Um, that to okay yeah and so that's where when you know big mahi and tuna and wahoo are running through basically they're all in that gulf stream and they're all just heading north and we kind of catch them on on their way through and then on their way back down Got it. Got it. Okay, so you're uh, you're dialed into this early. Yeah. Cookie, cooking's part of the family tradition. And then, uh, did you know early on you were going to be a chef? Or no, not at all. I went to uh, college for three years for architecture and design, and really, uh, just didn't enjoy it. Uh, my my fourth year college decided to drop out and leave that behind and was like you know i I really enjoy going to work i don't enjoy going to school and so i'm gonna flip that switch a little bit and go to school for something i enjoy so i moved to colorado and went to culinary school and uh johnson johnson and wells out in denver yeah 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 what you when was that that was 2012 2012 yeah why denver Somewhere new. Okay. The other Johnson Wells campuses were Charlotte, where I had lived previously, Miami, where I had lived previously, uh, Providence, Rhode Island, and Denver. And so I chose Denver. Oh, you had been in in Charlotte? Yeah. Yeah. So I moved from Miami to Charlotte. Really? Mm Mm-hmm. That's where I live. What what were you doing in Charlotte? uh, My dad got a job up there, so I spent five years in Charlotte after Miami, and then I lived in Boone for four years after that. And then uh, Colorado for five years, and then out to Kinston, North Carolina, for for a couple of years. All right, Boone's an awesome town. Boone's great. Boone is cool. Yeah. App State's got that great campus there. Oh, good, yeah. just chill, low key vibe there. Good yep. people, relaxed. It's a good yeah. place to be. Great fishing up there too. A lot of really great good fishing, fishing up, up there, there too. Yes, yeah. sir. Absolutely. And then so you go out to Colorado, you go to Johnson and Wales. How, how long? How long did you stay out there after you graduated? Yeah, yeah. I ended up staying out in Colorado for five years. Uh, really fell in love with the culture, the community. That's where I really fell in love with cooking as a profession. Okay. Uh, and it was a lot about the community, the restaurant community in Colorado was awesome. like nothing I'd ever seen. I mean, yeah. everything was just so tight knit, and people helped each other. Yep. We really looked out for each other. If you were down a guy, we would come help you. If you needed something, I would send it to you. Uh, the, it's really where I got to learn like seasonal cooking as well and working with farms and taking a look at seasonality of produce and animals and really paying attention to that as you write menus. Who did you work with out there? Uh, and so I worked at the Curtis Hotel with uh, Rich Byers and Will Caesar for a while. And then I worked at 12 Restaurant with Chef Osaka. Um, got a lot of really great experience with both of them 
Uh, and those are pretty much the two places I worked over the five years. I was very lucky at the hotel, working my way from a line cook all the way up to a sous chef, doing banquets, and then at 12, working my way from a line cook up to chef de cuisine and writing full menus. At 12, our menu changed fully every month on the first of the month. And so every you know two weeks, basically, you would have to sit down and, all right, let's get ready to write next month's menu. And so it really, again, got us looking at what, what's coming, what's in the pipeline for the next set of vegetables coming through, you know, what kind of produce is coming, what kind of animals should be, we'd be looking at harvesting, how's this farm doing? And so we, you know, taught me to start cooking that way. Did you, so you initially thought you wanted to be an architect, um, and now you're doing something totally different, but that, that strikes me, both of those have a, a creative Yeah side to it that yeah. you're you're able to to nurture now in a different way than architecture would but thinking ahead planning coming up with that's that takes a significant amount of thought imagination creativity i would imagine i would think yeah and it's it's uh it takes uh, just as much organization as it does you know creativity the, the creativity is very important to it but without the organization behind it you have you don't have a means to actually funnel that creativity yep because uh, if you're just kind of cooking off the cuff then you don't really have the time to plan ahead and to talk to farmers and when are they harvesting next uh and so you really that's what where i've improved i think over the last couple of years is starting to be a bit more preemptive and not as uh spontaneous yeah in in some of the cooking you know really understanding the seasons takes a while though when i moved back to north carolina from colorado those seasons changed you know the the soil's different out here. Our climate's different. Our ecosystems mm. are different. And so I had to tr- kind of learn and adapt to what North Carolina grew. In doing that, I realized that North Carolina grows some of the most amazing produce. <laughs> anyway, it's awesome. It, yeah, it's incredible. And so sure. we're very lucky to be here in Raleigh and very centrally located to um, tons of amazing farms. Very, I mean, there's four seasons here. Very temperate. Great climate. Mm-hmm. Okay, I'm gonna go back to Denver. Because you get so you go to culinary school, yeah, and then you start out as a line cook. You make your way up to sous chef. You, you move jobs. You start out again as a line cook. You yep. make your way up to sous chef. This I like a lot because. Um, well, let me ask you this: Was your mentality when you got out of Johnson and Wales that I went to Johnson and Wales? I don't. I, I should. I should be a sous chef, or, or did you? Do you knew you had to? You know? Did you kind of check your ego and know that humility was key, and you needed to start? on the line because I hear that a lot like people come out and they're, they're, they have higher expectations than the reality yeah. of what the workforce might dictate yeah you know and unfortunately I think the message depicted initially when you go in is that you'll come out ready to be a sous chef and yeah. that's just not the reality why is that not the reality uh, the you know the work ethic the the work ethic is a bit different it's very different from going to school and having a very structured and organized environment where everything's planned out and you pretty much know what's going to happen yeah you know, going then into the workforce is a bit more chaotic. You have yeah. to be spontaneous. You have to be able to think quick on your feet and make decisions and stand behind them. You have to work well with a large team too. Uh, learning to manage and, and you know work with a big team and manage other people was another challenging thing. They don't teach you in culinary school. Uh, you know, how do I manage a team of you know, 50 cooks? How do I manage a line of 10 people when I need something from all of them to come up at the same time? That's not really taught in culinary school. You need real-life experience to learn that. You need skin in the game. Yeah. You need, yeah, you need the, the trial and error part of that. There's no real way you can teach that, I wouldn't think. I mean, you just have to get in there and do it, which is why mm-hmm. starting as a line cook makes a lot of sense. 
Uh, and then maybe you're able to accelerate your, your progression more rapidly than possibly somebody that hadn't been to culinary school because of yep. the tools that you bring to the table. Well, so you do that, and then you, you, you become sous chef. You leave, now you go back to being a line cook. Yep. Same, same deal? Same thing, yeah. I started all the way back at the bottom, basically. I started. You How'd know, you feel about that? I felt okay about it. I knew yeah. in the long run that it, you were thinking, it was better for my career yeah. to take a step backwards in order to take two forward later. Yeah. Um, and I was confident that, you know, I've, I've always worked around people that uh, are very competitive and I'm very competitive. And so I want to be, you know, I don't like being at the bottom. And so I, I try and work as hard or as fast as, as anybody else in there. And I try and move my way up that way. And so I put in the hours and I put in the time and, you know, at 12 especially, it was, it was a hard kitchen. We'd get there at 7 in the morning and we'd leave at 1 or 2 the next morning. Six really? days a week. Dang. So That's a grind. It was, but, you know, we were a family. There was three of us that worked in that kitchen. Mm-hmm. And uh, we had one car shared between the three of us. And we lived, two of us lived together and the other one lived like a block away. We would all ride our bike if we didn't have the car, and basically we'd ride to each other's house and, all right, let's go. And we'd ride in, get coffee, and eat breakfast, and it was a family. I love that, man. The hustle and the grind. Yeah. Doing whatever it takes. That's yeah. freaking cool, man. So, well, I think that's a, it's a really valuable lesson and a really important mentality is don't ever expect to be handed anything don't ever expect that your credentials are what really ultimately matters they may get you indoors and stuff like that but what matters is are you willing to put your ass into something and go above and beyond what you've been expected to do and um you know just be a part of a a team that becomes a family and Mm -hmm. get each other's back and you know and you all the things you talked about and i mean gosh you have to learn to do all those things make quick decisions work with other people and you have to have figure out a way to do it um, without freaking out, staying yeah. calm. Yeah, it's a got, hard part of that. Keep I mean, cool. under the pressure. Like, are you a pressure cooker, or do you, you know, do you blow up or whatever? Mm-hmm. Uh, especially nowadays, it's just it's how people roll. I yeah. mean, if you're bitching and yelling and screaming at people, they're probably just <laughs> not going to stay around real long. No, and and you're never going to retain a staff that way. You're never going to build a, a real team that way. If you're, you know, the type of chef that runs around screaming and yelling and pointing yeah. fingers. You got to be in there with them and show them that you've got their back as much as they've got yours, and you got to be down cleaning floor yeah. drains with them and scrubbing fryers, and you know they you got to be a part of the team. You, you got to lead team. lead by example. Absolutely. You'll earn their respect when you do that. Once yeah. you've earned their respect, they'll do anything for you. Yep, because they're doing it with you, not exactly. for you. For is really, you. what it is. Um, okay, so you're out there, and then you can that, and then you went from Denver to Kinston, where you yep. worked with Vivian Howard. Yep. Okay. How did that happen? Uh, that was a pretty funny scenario where I had actually left 12 um, and I was doing restaurant consulting. Okay. And so I was consulting for a place down in New Mexico. I was still living in Denver. My next consulting gig when I finished that one was here in Raleigh. Okay. Well, how, and how many years ago was this? This was six or seven years ago now. Got it. Okay. Um, my next consulting gig was here in Raleigh and so I was going to be just... I was planning on moving back and then Raleigh being my home base. Uh, about a week before I was supposed to move for that consulting gig, I had a phone call that we lost the contract and I wasn't coming out uh, mm. here anymore, but I had already packed everything. And at least I didn't have a place to live or wow. anything. 
on a mutual friend who was uh, a friend of Ben and Vivian's and said, hey, I know these people in Kinston. Why don't you give them a call? So I had a over-the-phone interview with Ben while I was in my hotel room in New Mexico. He said, well, why don't you fly out and do a tasting? And so I flew out two days later, did a tasting on uh, Wednesday morning. I flew out Tuesday, did a tasting Wednesday morning. Drove back to Raleigh, flew back to Denver Wednesday night, and drove the U.O. out here Sunday. That's <laughs> awesome, man. It happened pretty quick. That's freaking cool. I didn't cool. have a place to live. I lived in their guest house for the first like week or so when I moved out here, and then they helped me find a place and kind of get my feet under me, and yeah, got settled. Serendipity. Yeah. Uh, okay, so you're in Ken- now. Kenston is, oh gosh, I mean, culturally and in a lot of ways, a far cry from Denver and and Miami and Charlotte. And yeah, I mean, I know, I know Kenston. I actually have some yeah. uh, buddies who grew up in Kenston. But for people listening, t- t- tell us about Kenston. Like, what was your first impression when you went there? Uh, Kenston's a, my first impression was it's a it was small like town, very very small town. Yeah, um, deeply with very deep roots and attachments to to the land and to agriculture uh and that's actually what i really fell in love with when i moved there is yeah that's what i took away a lot you know that i learned from from kinston and from vivian is really again connecting with the people around you and learning truly about the microculture and the micro seasons that are growing and why things are growing right now around you right and taste them constantly okay this tomato is going to change today uh, it's not going to be the same tomorrow. Right. And why is it? Is there a cold front coming through? Is it getting extra hot outside? Did it rain? Uh, what What are causing these things to change? And that really helped set me up for what I did next with Standard and having our own farm in the backyard. So I was able to really understand that. But Kinston uh, was definitely a culture shock, but it's it's a very special place to me for several reasons. I met my wife there. And, oh, congrats. And thank you. Um, How long were you there? I was there for two years. Okay. Um, you know, had a lot of good connections and made a lot of friends, and you know, I'm very thankful for the time I got to spend there. Awesome, awesome. And then you made your way here to Raleigh to Standard. Yep. Where so Scott Crawford had left, yep. and you came in and took over mm-hmm. as executive chef there. Um, how, how did that? How did that take place? Uh, I was supposed to move to Raleigh to open a different restaurant. Okay, and more serendipity. <laughs> yeah, uh, the landlord that I was that we were going to be renting the the building from uh, was the same landlord at Standard. I was like, hey, I have this other place that's already fully built out. Looking for a chef to kind of come and take over. Why don't you come and take a look? And so we ended up going that route and doing the standard thing got it got it. and this was like a few years ago uh this was about three years ago now three years yeah. ago okay all right uh and so how long were you there for two years two years yeah. okay and that brought you here yeah all right so tell me uh, tell me about locals uh how it got started and and uh what the idea was and then how it fits into this really badass food hall i, I will confess we have a lot of customers that I run these food halls, and I hear a lot about them. I've actually never been to one until oh, yeah? today. Awesome. Yeah. Well, thanks. Um, yeah. I'm, uh, I'm stoked. This place is awesome. The, Thank you. Um, do you know uh, Angela Salamanca yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. and Marsh? Yeah, because I, I was with them recently up in um, 
Gallo Playon, uh-huh. and uh, they were talking about Exfoto, and I guess it's in a food hall similar to this in Durham, I believe. Yeah, or, yeah, yeah the, we're the, opening up there with them as well. And are Mar- you really? Marshall's actually uh, moonlighting with us at the bar here. Is he uh, really? On the restaurant side just until they're waiting on Exfoto to get open. So, yeah, uh, Raleigh's... So he's sneaking his mezcal over here? Oh, man, I wish. <laughs> God, I got to go to his, to his house and steal that personal collection of his. Have you ever had some of it? Oh, yeah. It's oh, my phenomenal. gosh. I'd never had it. I, they, he introduced it yeah. to me recently. That was... That was that was cool. It's pretty fantastic. I'm just picking his brain about it. I mean, they're so so knowledgeable. Oh my, it's amazing. Yeah, we spent like 40 minutes talking about it, yeah. like just just scratching the surface. Yeah, you know. But okay, well, cool. So all right, so g- give me the story here. What? How did this all come together? So local seafood started uh, almost nine years ago now with uh, Lynn Peterson and Ryan Speckman, okay, are the, the two co-founders, and they both have natural resource management degrees from NC State. Is it in there here in Raleigh? And they're here in Raleigh, yeah, yes, okay. sir. And so they, you know, they had kind of split up, and Ryan was doing some uh, waterfowl research uh, out in like Masonboro County on the coast. Okay. And Lynn Peterson was working for a company doing marketing here in Raleigh. You know, in in Ryan's time out on the coast, he kind of realized that a lot of he made friends with a lot of the commercial fishermen out there. Realized that a lot of the fish that they're catching and that they're you know, bringing in and eating themselves never makes it inland. He had never seen or heard of croakers or spots. And, you know, red drum mm. wasn't very popular back there and speckled trout. And he was eating this with those fishermen that he had now become friends with and was like, well, why isn't this making it in? So he, he kind of found a gap in the market there. It's like the people need this is, you know, the re- if you're a taxpayer in North Carolina, you pay for this resource and this resource, a portion of it should belong to you. And how can we bring this in, you know, to the triangle? Yeah. And so they started out with shrimp and driving igloo coolers of fresh shrimp up here and selling them on the side of the road in a parking lot. Really? Yeah. And Boy, I tell you what, Carolina, I mean, I, I know there's good shrimp all over, but if you get some shrimp off the coast of the Carolinas, man, that's oh, freaking good. Yeah, yeah. We just started getting, like, our first green tail shrimp of the year, and it's mm. they're incredible. Mm. <laughs> they're so good. I could eat. I can eat a lot of this. <laughs> We're going through about 150 pounds a week. Are you really? Yeah, it's uh, it's pretty awesome. But they grew the business from you know selling again out of the back of coolers and breaking down fish on their back decks uh, to to this where we now have you know we send trucks to the coast almost every day. Uh, we have four delivery mm-hmm. vans. We deliver to tons of restaurants here in the, in the triangle. Um, where this is our first brick and mortar location, but that we are represented in three farmers markets. We're at the Western Wake Farmers Market, the Chapel Hill Farmers Market, and uh, the State Farmers Market here in Raleigh. And so, this being our first brick and mortar, we were really excited to kind of step the game up and show a few other things that we could do with fish and other possibilities. And our, the whole time, the backbone of this being. You know, preservation of the species, highlighting what North Carolina does, highlighting what the fishermen and the growers are doing here, uh, but also understanding that sustainability is key, and we need to find ways to use underutilized species and and less thought of species and cuts of of fish uh, in order to have any longevity in this business and and with this resource. And so that's where, like, our logo and our mascot uh, of mullet kind of came around. It's a delicious fish with a terrible name. Yeah. And, you know, it's, it's kind of become a running joke, but it's one of our favorites, and we really rely very heavily on the mullet here. 
as you know people did in the early 1900s it was a huge fisheries here in the states uh, because it was very easily caught from shore the the sustainability of it uh, was very high because they reproduce very quickly they grow very quickly they're actually vegetarian um, they're very high in omega-3 fats very low in mercury mm. they're super healthy for you so we kind of really bought into these lesser utilized fish and that's what we're trying to do here and we're trying to drive home oh man you guys could all grow mullets to support that oh man it's <laughs> we got we got one guy on the team rocking a pretty sweet mullet right now they're coming yeah, back they're they're coming back they're, they're definitely here <laughs> <laughs> i love it man yeah hey my uh i'll tell you what we're gonna take a quick break i gotta change these batteries i don't want to i don't want to lose any of this while i'm not paying attention so hold on one second. no problem we'll take a pause all right, we're back. So we were just talking while I was changing the batteries here about some legislation that was just passed here on Friday, which is going to could impact y'all. So t- just break it down a little bit. What? Um, so the the short of it is that commercial fishing for some inshore species is is really going to change, uh, primarily flounder, but also affecting speckled trout and red drum and a lot of the the species that we catch here in the Pamlico Sound. Uh, they've cut off most of the commercial fishing um, especially gill netting for those species uh, they're going to reopen them in very very limited fashion. Explain what gill netting is and so gill netting is where a boat will come through the big reel uh, of net and they'll kind of drop it down uh, and they'll run it down the line and then they'll come back and scoop it up and pull up any of the fish that are in it um, the ones that we're doing here you know, the, the, especially the boats that that our local fishermen here in the Pamlico Sound, they're not like giant commercial long-lining boats where they're putting out miles and miles of line. It, it, it's somewhat restricted by by budget and finances, obviously, and so they're, they're putting out limited versions of this, but even pound net fisheries too, which is one of the most sustainable ways of fishing, is kind of getting, getting pushed out because it's not modern and you know, they don't know how to regulate it. And so there are a lot of political factors affecting this, and the the uh, camo kind of that, that it's being draped over is the sustainability and health of the, of the species saying that while the species isn't reproducing and our, our volume of flounder and pamphlet sound is, is decreasing um, which may be true and, and obviously we, we we all want sustainability and longevity for these fisheries and for these species that we're all an advocate of that However, there are a lot of other factors that aren't really being considered. Um, water quality is one of the biggest ones that's constantly talked about. You know, where you can it's you can watch the parallel decrease of fisheries in the Pamlico Sound as right alongside as of the water quality. What What do you mean by the water quality? What's happening with the water quality? We have a lot of agriculture as well here in the state, and so there's there's a lot of runoff Runoffs. that goes into the News River from farms of different different types um, uh, from farms and manufacturers and, and facilities right. um, and it's decreasing the overall water quality of the Pamlico Sound oh yeah like um, pig farm and stuff and the, yeah ah, and so that's getting into the sound and that decreases the quality of the water which impacts the species yes uh, and there's no way to know how much is because of that how much is because of yeah, gill nets and how much it, just, so it's sort of an impossible task to figure out right right, right okay um, but where they've kind of pinned this is on commercial fishermen and, and targeting gill netters 
Um, and so they've effectively re- removed that resource. And so now, you know, the fisheries of, of Red Drum and Flounder are going to be reserved primarily for recreational fishermen. Okay, so how, okay, that's in the Pamlico Sound. So that's what we define as inshore. Yeah, and so is that and where you get a lot of? That's where we get a, a large portion of our fish. You know, we we're very lucky in the state of North Carolina. We have the largest inshore sound, the uh, largest inshore in, sound. in the country. Okay, uh, you know, you, even the Chesapeake isn't this big. We, we have a very unique scenario here, and so you can't even compare it to other states and, o- and other areas. Mm. Because we're, we're we're one of a kind, you know. The Pamlico Sound is very unique ecosystem uh, that sustains a lot of life. This went into effect this past Friday. Uh, yeah, com- okay. yeah, it got voted on this past Friday. It actually closes uh, this coming week. I believe Sunday will be the end of uh, flounder season now, and so we won't see any more flounder. They're talking about opening it for a small window, about three to four weeks, sometime in the middle of September. Um, but we may see now flounder commercially caught and like red drum for, you know, three or four weeks a year. Uh, and if you, there are several other states in the country that have already done this, and we were kind of the last frontier and the last state holding on to this resource. You know, uh, Louisiana and Florida, you now can't commercial fish for red drum and, and flounder and a lot of those those inshore species at all, at all. Okay, um, and so that that's disappeared from restaurants completely uh you can go out and catch it recreationally and you can keep whatever your daily limit is but you can't get flounder and yeah and so we were the last wow. state really holding on to that and south carolina unfortunately we lost it south carolina is the same okay so where no. for here this is inshore you can you can you still catch these fish off i mean i, I, I believe there's still going to be trawling for them offshore okay um that again gets into a whole nother uh, slew of debates and topics and environmental uh, you know repercussions from trawling and, and that sort of stuff. Okay, okay. But you're getting how many different uh, operations are you buying your fish from? Not many. Okay. We we primarily I mean, are they all inshore or most of them are inshore? Are they going to get? I mean, a lot of them are inshore, and it really is because especially now as weather starts getting colder. Offshore fishing starts getting harder. You know, the, the inclement weather really right. keeps, keeps boats in. This week, for example, we're getting primarily inshore fish because no one's really been able to get offshore with this cold front that came through. It pushed a lot of fish, wow. uh, pushed a lot of fish out of here, and so we're kind of sticking to like triggerfish and mullet and some snapper. And you know, unfortunately, tilefish is closed. Spanish mackerel just closed. Flounders. When you say closed, that means for the season. The fisheries closed for the season. Yep. Yeah. Okay. And so that's it, not because of this legislation. No, that's no, no. That's just that's the seat. That's the had yeah. been. Do these all these? I mean, they must have. I'm sure this has been being discussed for a long time. So these folks that run these inshore fishing, uh, commercial fishing businesses, have contingency plans, or I mean, they, what are they? A lot of them don't. A lot of them the, don't. This is generations worth of fishermen and families just, that that are now geez. out of out of work. I mean, really hundreds. Hundreds of people that are basically out of work. Does um, this have a big impact on your business? It, 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 it definitely has an impact on it. Um, you know, we we have the ability though to buy other species. Yeah. But unfortunately, for those fishermen, is, is really where it has the biggest impact because they don't have bigger boats. They can't go offshore they and can't. say, "Well, now I'm going to go catch tuna." Right. You know, that they just can't. They don't have the equipment for that. They don't have the investment for that. Okay. Um, and so it's. 
you know, the, the long line boats and the big boats that are going offshore, you know, several of them are usually owned by one company or yeah. one person owns several boats okay. and just sends his fleet out. Uh, a lot of our inshore fishermen are independently owner operated boats that, you know, this was my dad's boat and I took it over and we fixed it and I go out. Well, that. Okay. So you're going to have different species possibly. Does it in, uh, does it increase your costs? Uh, le- because there's less when the season comes through because the, they they still will be available in very small windows. I'm going to assume that the cost is going to drive uh, pretty high. Yeah. Not because of that. Yeah. But then maybe consumers will. I mean, if you can only get flounder like a few weeks a year, maybe they. Yeah. Pay more. Uh, wow. Okay. That's interesting. I didn't realize that was going on. Yeah. You know, at, at this point, it's already passed. So the, the yeah. hope is that it was all for the right reasons. And hopefully we see the fisheries return and, and, and the populations and the health of the species really thrive. Well, I guess um, now we'll know if that. Yeah. Or at least, you know. Yeah, well, in five years or so, we'll have a better we'll idea a better if idea. this was the right decision or if, you know, we need to pivot and look at something else. Water quality or yeah. something. Right. Okay. So. Okay, so you guys uh, got this thing going. This is your first uh, brick and mortar, mm-hmm. and then you're going to the Durham. We're as going well. to the Durham Food Hall. Yep. Are you are you you food hall focused, or is that just for now? Yeah. Um, I think. The, Tell me about food halls. Like, why why is the food hall a good option for y'all? I uh, mean, I can make some some guesses, but I'd love to hear what went into thinking about opening here versus finding some separate you know space and you know i think opening in a food hall has been great for us you know the the volume and the representation from the community and support from the community we've gotten has been absolutely phenomenal uh i don't know that you know obviously we can speculate i don't know that we would have gotten that same support uh in the volume that we have at a standalone brick and mortar okay i think having a food hall allows option or gives people options yeah and so you can come in with a group of 10 and you know maybe eight of you want to eat raw raw oysters but two of you don't and that's okay you can still bring all 10 people here and all 10 can be satisfied have a great time together where if we were standalone brick and mortar we probably wouldn't have that 10 top even come in yeah because they need to go somewhere that facilitates their whole group yep here we can still capture that business and we can still show those people a great time because we have the ability to you know offer different options well i literally saw it happen earlier a group came in and a couple of them came to y'all a couple went somewhere else a couple went somewhere else yeah was, i mean literally just i watched it happen they're like nah, i think i'm gonna go to this one guys i'm getting locals and he, yeah he, and yeah and then they all sat together yeah um, yeah okay how many vendors are in here Seven or eight? Nine vendors right now. We've got one left to open all the way up front, which will be uh, Elementary. They're opening uh, an awesome craft butcher shop and charcuterie store and (sighs) some sandwiches and fresh-made pasta. It's going to be really stoked for them. God, if I lived here, I'd just come in every day and just rotate around. (laughs) (laughs) It's it's hard not to. I mean, seriously. That's pretty cool. Everyone in here does such a great job. It's an awesome community to be a part of. You've got a big footprint within yeah. this facility yeah, really big footprint how many i mean you've got the bar that's yours too right the yeah. bar yeah we operate okay. both the bars uh um, we also do the like janitorium porter maintenance staff of the building and kind of overall like uh cleanliness and health of, of the building we, we oversee and manage 
Who? So we've got a pretty big team now, a little over 70 people working. Why do y'all have here. that part? Uh, we, so we got the liquor license in North Carolina. You can only have one license per roof. Uh, and so we have, there's only one liquor license allowed for the building. And so we have the liquor license. Uh, the other side of that is that we take care and manage nice. the space. Good for y'all. Yeah. Um, oh, that's really cool. Okay. So nobody else can have a liquor license in here. Uh, not in here. No. Not in here. Unless we choose, we can allow them um, to sell under our permit with some variances as long as it's approved by the ABC board. Okay. Uh, like we've allowed, I think, bear, or bench warmers, bagels right below us did a collaboration burial beer where they did like a bagel or donut beer. Um, we'd let them tap that. We assume okay. liability, but... You know, we figure out the logistics on the back. I heard end their bagels are really good. Oh, they're fantastic. My buddy I stayed with last night, and he said they were. In fact, we actually came over here this morning. I just had coffee. Yeah. I just don't eat breakfast. Yeah. But um, he said their bagels were fantastic. They're. They've really got like good. the wood. Yeah, they got a wood fired oven down there. Dude, it's, that's, it's, I mean, I mean, they get in here at like three, four in the morning and get uh, that thing rolling. It's. I was wondering what that was, was for. I asked that. Yeah. I was like, the young lady at the register. I was like, who uses that wood in here? She's like, we do. Oh, for yeah. bagels. That sounds cool. Yeah. Uh, and there's a beer a yeah. brewery open next door? Or? So there's a burial beer, and you actually have to go out because they do have their own liquor permit. Oh, you got to go out and around. You have to go out and around. They're not joined to the food hall. Okay. Um, but, yeah, burial beers right next door, and then we're going to have Longleaf Swine opening up next to them, which is going to be doing some killer barbecue. Ooh. We've got a really nice event space. It fits about 150, 200 people opening up next door as well. And so that's going to be cool. nice to host, you know parties and weddings and small concerts and yeah. it's going to be a really really nice venue what do you share as a food hall here do you share do you are you fully functioning or do you We're share the fully functioning everyone has their own like three compartment sink to do their own dishes or anything okay, okay. their own cold storage um at this food hall everything is pretty self-sustaining within each concept uh, at the Durham Food Hall, for example, there is it's a bit more communal. So there's a communal like dishwashing station. Okay. There's a communal walk-in cooler where everybody has certain amounts of space in there. Yeah. Okay. Okay. Gotcha. Gotcha. Um, interesting, man. So y'all open in January. Yep. Um, what's has it gone as as you thought it would? Um, it you know there's been ups and downs like anywhere else it's been really challenging but we have a really awesome team uh and the fact of that we've been able to get here so quickly um is a testament to to the team we have and to how hard they all work yeah um you know when we opened up there was two of us cooking in the kitchen and doing dishes and all of it and there was one person working up front and then all of our owners and partners we're in here bussing tables and cleaning bathrooms and it it took everybody in here to get us open and we've now like I said grown from you know our six person partner team and the three of us operators to over 70 employees yeah you guys have a lot of staff I was yeah. looking in your uh, schedule fly profile that's a lot of folks yeah and you're running how many days a week seven days now seven days yeah. a week yesterday was our first Monday we are seven days a week now seven days a week and you you open 11. We open at 11. Benchwarmers does open earlier. Yeah. They open at 7, but we open at 11. The entire food hall is open 11 to 10 p.m., except for uh, Sundays. Sundays we close at 8 p.m. Can you uh, 
you're going to come up with some kind of oyster concoction, start serving that for breakfast? We're thinking about they've got the they got the monopoly on breakfast. They've got the. I mean, it's hard to compete with them on breakfast. Yeah, I bet it is. I did. Well. Yeah, trip. My buddy was telling me that like on Saturday mornings, you come out here and there's like 25 people in line. Oh yeah, uh, but they they move through it quick. I mean, they, that, yeah. the line will get. We've had. I've seen the line go from there, start about you know 50 feet down to the middle of the food hall and around the corner to the door. Really? Yeah. It's it's probably been well over a hundred people before, oh, but God, that's crazy. they pump them out. And they've got a great operation. What, so what's changed for you? I mean, I mean, a lot's changed for you. And if y'all had six people and now you've got seventy, but how has your role evolved and changed? And now you've got you're going into Durham. Like, mm-hmm. what are you doing these days most of the time? Um, I'm still cooking pretty still actively cooking? a lot, okay. uh, and I really enjoy it. We we just opened the full dining portion of our of our restaurant, and so Thursday through Saturday. Uh, the portion that you were sitting over in the corner, that actually converts at 5 o'clock at night to a full-service restaurant. We have an elevated menu over there. Nice. We have full-service servers, bartenders, um, a different wine program, different cocktail program. And so we're doing, you know, it's a, it's kind of a tertiary aspect of the business where we have the bars, or I guess a fourth aspect. We have the bars, the food hall, uh, the fish market, and then this restaurant aspect. And so we're, we're, the line is in the kitchen is set up to activate and do these things simultaneously. Nice. Uh, out of two separate windows. So it's a lot of fun. I bet it is. I bet it is. Who, um, in, when you, is, is Durham, Durham's next? And Durham's that'll next. open here in the next few months? Is Maybe. That, I mean, I know that's been uh, taking longer than. Yeah, it's taking a little bit longer than expected. Um, I think we're still hopeful for this year. Okay. Yeah. Got it. Got it. Any further plans after that, or are you just kind of going one at a time? Right now, we're going to kind of see how that one goes. We definitely have aspirations for doing some more. You know, personally, I've got aspirations for doing more restaurants and more concepts. And uh, I think as a team, we've we've definitely got some plans to expand and, and do a couple more things. And we've started some conversations, but everything's still in pretty a- adolescent phases. What do you all think you're doing really well, Eric? I mean, your food's really good. Like, there's that's hands down. That's that food was freaking good, dude. I mean, there's no doubt about it. So we we'll cross that off the list. But what else are y'all doing? What? How are you? Because uh, you clearly, I mean, right now you've already got a lot of people hanging out here. Uh, you do good volume. You got a, you've grown to seventy people. You're doing a lot of things really well. The food's got to be really good. What else is are some of the keys to that formula that's helping y'all be successful here? Um, I think one thing that we're all really proud of is the culture that we're trying to build uh, within the company and within the food hall uh, of really embracing the community and being supportive of one another and, and you know, ha- having each other's back. Uh, there's a very unfortunate uh, restaurant explosion in Durham mm. um, earlier this year and uh, lots of people were affected. Unfortunately, one person lost, lost their life uh, and we kind of got together and threw a fundraiser for them and were able to raise almost $30,000 uh, in one day. And that just went directly to the workers that and to the family that, you know, lost everything. Um, and so I, I think we're, we're trying to really build Was that something. the food hall or is that locals? Or? Uh, that, the, the entire food hall. The entire food hall. That. That's yeah. really cool. So you yeah. all banded together. Yeah. That. Okay. Um, and, you know, it's... Uh, we're trying to build something that's obviously bigger than us as, as individuals and as a company and really represent and offer something that's to the community that wasn't here previously. Um, 
And so that that's something I'm really proud of. And you know, with our employees, I think we we have a really good uh, rapport with our employees. I'm really proud of the way that we manage and we take care of our staff. And you know, we're a new restaurant starting up, or we're starting to offer health insurance. We're looking at offering you know retirement 401k plans. We offer benefits for for managers. We offer livable wages for everybody. Uh, and so that's something I'm really proud of. You know, it's really hard in, this, in the restaurant industry to to make a livable wage unless you are a manager. And, what is a livable wage? Um, you know, that's that's determined by the individual. But I think we we've kind of determined that twelve dollars an hour is the minimum. Is the minimum really? Okay. And so that's you know the minimum that that we pay anybody. Yeah. And offering you know consecutive days off i try and keep a lot of our people on on four day schedules and you work four tens and you're off three days a week usually in a row uh nice okay it's just quality of life things and really making sure that we're we're aware of of people's mental and physical health and and how they're doing inside and outside of work and we're there for them when they need us to be we've had uh we've had some staff experience some really horrible tragedies and you know it's been that's when that's when they need us and they're here for us when we need them to work how how are you there for them what do you like somebody has a tragedy does that mean that you're 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 taking you don't have a black and white policy on things it's more this happened and we're gonna it's a case by figure out what you need and yeah yeah okay engage you and really try to understand mm -hmm. what's going on and see how we can help okay like for i don't want to get into details about other people's lives but personally uh my wife and i had a kid um uh, beginning of June, and they gave me you know two weeks of paternity leave, which is unheard of. Congrats, my friend. Thank you. Is that your first? It is our first. Yeah. Oh, yeah. wait a minute. June. So this is oh two months. Yep. <laughs> Boy or girl? Girl. Dude. Yeah. yeah. She's a kid. Oh man. Uh, Being a dad to a young daughter, there's yeah. nothing like. I got three kids. I got a daughter and two sons. Oh, awesome. It's hard, yeah. but very fun. Yeah, it is. Yeah, it is uh, very rewarding. Incredibly. So you got two weeks off to just yeah to, embrace to be at home. This, with, yeah, yeah, with with her and with my wife, and really kind of help get acclimated to things. And that isn't something that's common practice, especially in the restaurant industry. Not in this business. No. Um, and you know, it's it's very hard, and it's typically pretty cutthroat. And to have. Uh, partners and co-workers that were so on board with making sure that I was comfortable and my wife was comfortable and that, you know, we I was there with my daughter for the first two weeks it meant a lot to me. Uh, and so that, that was pretty awesome. Yeah, you had all those all those years from 7 a.m. to 2 a.m., 1 a.m. or whatever, man. Yeah. You're, you're, you've already... You've already at least gotten a little bit uh, conditioned for that. Cause yeah, the, the, sl- well, the sleep deprivation has already been those, conditioned. Those then. nights can be pretty <laughs> rough for a while. Oh, man. Well, that's cool. Um, so this is a – and who owns the food food hall? So, um, so uh, Jason Queen and uh, Monarch Properties. Okay. I believe uh, on the food hall. What was here before? Uh, so this, it's called Transfer Company Food Hall because in the early 1900s, it was a bus transfer station. Ah, uh, okay. So where, you know, folks couldn't, buses were independently owned, but folks couldn't, you know, keep them at their house or work on them at their homes. Okay. This was a communal bus station. And nice. people would bring their buses in. And actually, this pit down here was, uh, you'll see some big concrete pilings up on it that we put bench tools on it now. But that was originally, you know, we didn't have lifts. 
to to lift uh, the buses up. And so they would drive it over into that pit on the ramp and have that cutout underneath to be able to get up under the buses and work on them. That's cool. That's cool. So they, what was here immediately prior to the food hall? Uh, this building's been abandoned since like the 80s. Really? Yeah, it's been, it was in real, I mean, there was, the roof wasn't really here. It was yeah. in really rough shape. Okay, so they came in, they renovated this thing, they turned it into this food hall. Mm-hmm. Abandoned since the 80s. That's pretty wild. I wonder, yeah. Uh, okay, and then you lease your space? Yep, yeah, we lease our, our corner of, uh, of this little building. Okay, got it, got it. Um, what have been some of the uh, surprises, challenges y'all have had that you maybe hadn't anticipated for? Um, I think the volume has caught everybody off guard. And a lot more it, than you thought? And a pleasant, yeah, pleasant surprise. Yeah, way more than we thought. How do you even, like, guess at that when you're, when you're starting a plan for this? Uh, like, how do you have any clues? We didn't. Yeah. Uh, we... We had, we thought we had, you know, planned and, and gone over these performas and really laid things out. We had a good idea of what we were getting into, and we didn't have a clue. You had six people, and yeah, we didn't less a than a year later, you got <laughs> 70. But you got, well, look, it's good to plan conservatively. I mean, yeah. that's better than the opposite. Um, so, so you're, but you're getting your arms around it now, and after, you know, a year or so, you'll probably start to set into more reliable yeah. forecasts. And, okay. That's really cool. Um, do you, and you have, how many folks are um, on your line? Uh, so the food hall runs one, uh, usually by themselves. Okay. At max capacity, we'll do two. Okay. And the restaurant does two. So it's, it's pretty slim. Um, wow. But I've got, again, an incredible team, and, you know, we believe in, paying our people liberal wage and with that though comes hard work and if you're willing to come in here and work hard and do good quality work we reward that with a i think a good quality of life and fair pay and we treat our people well but we do ask you know a lot of them and it's uh i I just can't say enough about how awesome the, the people that we've been able to hire are and yeah how none of this would be even remotely possible without like the 70 person team of rock stars that we currently have well uh they're also part of a exciting growing business that'll present opportunities inevitably for ones that are working hard yeah and and we very much believe in and and try and reinforce you know promoting growth from within yeah and uh you know, it's it's really exciting to talk about possibilities and opportunities for growth because that's that's how we get to then show these people that we really do care. This, you know, we're not blowing smoke. I want you to succeed, and these are areas that now, if I go do this other project, well, then you can run this business here, and I'm going to show you how to do it, and I'm going to train you how to do it, and then if one day you're ready to leave here and go do your own business because you learned that here. There's no better feeling. It's right? awesome. It's yep. Like, you know, to, to then now someone showed me and took the time to show me from, from a dishwasher was where I started how to, how to prep food and then how to make a salad and then how to cut fish and then how to be a chef. And yep. It's my turn to pass that down. Pay it forward. Did yeah. you, um, 
Who, who have been some of those people? Who have you learned from over the years? Or who are the folks that you would consider your, your mentors or your role models? Um, well, I mean, definitely Jeff Osaka at 12, you know, Vivian Howard, Ben Knight was a huge mentor of mine. You know, I, I still look up a lot to, to those three uh, and work very closely with them. Then I've had a lot of peers and people that I've worked alongside with that weren't necessarily chefs of mine that really motivated me and pushed me and, and still continue to do so. Uh, and, and I'm just as thankful for a lot of those people. Um, as I am for the chefs that really kind of pulled me along. Yeah, for sure, for sure. Who else? I mean, you know, locally there's so many awesome people doing so many cool things. And what I really like about Raleigh I find to be fascinating is a lot of y'all, you know, everybody seems to to know each other, uh, collaborate a lot. It's a really, what's like you said, it's just a really community-driven hospitality scene there's benefits there's collaborations there's pop-ups supporting each other just seems to be a lot of um this underpinning of a philosophy that is you know if if others succeed we all succeed yeah you know it's the the mentality of the rising title right Right. it's not cutthroat it's not you know i mean mean, there's competition and all that kind of Mm -hmm. stuff but if you all do well and raleigh does well everybody does well absolutely consumer does the employees do the owners do it just is a yeah you know self-fulfilling kind of thing absolutely and that that's i think what's been so amazing to see in Raleigh and what I follow in love with the community here in Raleigh is how that really is seemingly never endless. Yeah. Every single, like every restaurant really cares about each other. Yeah. And they want to support each other and they want to give shout outs. And it it shows, it shows even to their staff on days that you're closed, you go out as a team to another restaurant, another restaurant. Yeah. You go and you show them love and support and you admire the things that they're doing well and you learn from them. And then when they're off, you invite them into yours. Yeah. Uh, and you show them a good time. And, you know, we don't get a lot of time off in this industry. And so when uh, an industry, you know, professional and or brother or sister comes in to your establishment, you really acknowledge that and you, you appreciate it because yeah. you know that time off is very limited. And so they chose to spend it with you. Love it. Love it. Yeah. That you find, I mean, you mentioned that out in Denver. It sounds like. That's another community where yeah. you see a lot of that Denver and Boulder and that yep. area. Um, you don't find that everywhere. Uh, you, no, definitely not. Depending on what cities you go to, sometimes there's a lot more competition, not yeah. as much collaboration. Uh, but Raleigh really has that going on. I love that about this this city. Um, anything else on your mind, man? I want to let you get back to it because you've, you've, you've given us a lot of time. But uh, anything else you want to wrap about? Um. I mean, I think one of the things I'm most excited about is we've been, I've been kind of getting to nerd out on like seafood charcuterie and dry aging mm. of fish. Ah. And that's something that I'm really looking forward to spending the, next, aging fish. The, f- the next few years on really honing that in and nice. kind of perfecting that. And we've had a lot of support and people have really dug it. And it's, it's kind of weird and it's out there. And, but so is, you know, dry aging of beef. Before we started yeah. doing it, I mean, I've never—I don't know that I've okay. Tr- like, what kind of fish are you uh, are good for? We've been doing whole fish, uh, dry age, the same as you would 
uh, cows mm. or, or, or anything else. Really? And so we've been working with a lot of tilefish and grouper dry aging and tuna dry aging. I've got some, some king mackerel dry aging right now. And mm. then learning to do charcuterie with all of that has also been very important because charcuterie really derived from uh, a necessity for preservation, necessity to use up scraps and organ meats. Yeah. And that necessity came from the fact that the animals are difficult and expensive to raise yep. and you need to use all of it. Right. Uh, the same thing applies for seafood where it's a dwindling resource that we need to be proud of and be able to use all of. A standard fish gets about roughly 50% yield is your yield of fillet to bone. Okay, so 50% yield. If you're only eating the fillet, you're expecting me to throw away half of what I... Of what are you throwing away? The bones, the, you know, the collars, the organs, everything else that that typically is just trashed. Okay. Uh, we're trying to take a different approach and say, all right, what can we do with what those things? With what can you do with bones? Um, and so typically bones are just made for stocks or soups. Uh, they can be done and, and utilized a lot a lot of different ways. So we have the fish collars actually in our food hall menu, which are some chicken fried fish collars. Mm. Um, the collar is kind of right behind the head, uh, right over the gill plate, and it, it starts before the fillet does. It's a, comparable to a chicken thigh. It is bone okay. in, but there is some fantastic meat in there. The moisture retention in there because it's cooked bone in yeah. is really incredible mm. and so we treated it like a chicken thigh and we bread it you know in chicken fry and cover in some spicy hot honey it's fantastic Dang. and then you know we've been able to take uh the bloodlines from tuna which north carolina is a great and very healthy tuna fishery especially on yellowfin uh but the bloodline is a part of the fillet closest to the vertebrae and it has a higher flow of blood typically running through it and so it gets this deep purple uh, color, and it gets uh, a richer iron flavor. Mm. Typically, that that's cut out and just discarded and sent to cat food or to the dump. Uh, we actually found that that higher iron content lends the flavor to being closer to beef. So when we made that connection, we realized, all right, we can grind it. And so now we have a burger made just from the bloodlines of tuna that was typically thrown away. Oh, uh, we have a bowl really? of like a meat sauce Oof. on our dinner menu that's done with gnocchi that's made of that discarded product. And so I, the, the willingness, we're, we're trying to basically open people's eyes to wanting to eat more of the fish. Um, you know, the cheeks, the collars, you know, really scraping the bones down for every bit. So we scrape our carcasses down with a spoon pretty much to get every bit of meat off of it. We've been able to turn those down into like fish sticks, which are processed like, like chicken nuggets. Um, and then, you know, that's good kids food that's very easy and approachable. And But we're using, again, every scrap of meat on, on that fish. Organs? Um, what are so the Organs. So livers and hearts. Livers and hearts. We've had some success with. They've been pretty delicious. Are those rich in nutrients? Like a they are. Okay. They are very rich in nutrients, um, and just like you know any other animal, they have a different flavor profile, and they can be metallic and irony. But it really depends on how you process them, and how you treat them, and the care that uh, is put forth to them from the second they leave the water. And so that really starts with the fishermen as well. As you know, are wow. they getting these fish? How are they treating them when they come out of the water? Are they just laying on the deck or are they going straight into ice? You know, that really changes the quality of product that we get here. Yeah. And so that's where then local seafood comes in. They have a great relationship 
and have some really well-trained fish buyers that we send to the coast, like I said, almost every day now, and buying really high-quality fish and developing these relationships with these boats of like, hey, I, you know, we need to make sure we're maintaining the best quality that we can yeah. so that we can get you the best price that we can so that we can sell the best product that we can. Man, do you... um some livers do you know that I recently do you know that like orcas are actually the most dominant predator in the sea that great whites are like terrified oh, yeah. of them mm-hmm. and that when they they're pack hunters they're pack hunters yeah. and they'll like bull ram a great white and they uh they'll they roll s- them over they roll them over and they like suck the liver out and then leave the rest like because yeah. the liver's where like that's it's the highest fat content yeah. in the animal and so it's a very high nutrient count Mm, yeah. yeah, yeah, it's crazy. That's or, freaking wild. wild. They're badass. Yeah. I didn't realize that. I didn't. But apparently, like if they're within a few hundred yards of great whites, those guys are bolt for like mm-hmm. like months. Like they, oh, you yeah. won't see them around. Like if you want to get rid of the great whites out here, just stick an orca, you know, and it, like <laughs> they're not gonna be around for a while. Um, so what about the tail? What do you do with the tail? Anything? So we've been cat uh, treats. Well, it's uh, <laughs> funny you say that. Actually, local <laughs> seafood started a cat and dog food program. <laughs> <laughs> That's and awesome. so we're now even the bones that they don't use yeah. get milled down and cooked for cat and dog food treats. Really? Um, and then like triggerfish are is a great resource that we sell a lot of here, but the skins are like you know leather. Yeah, like, it's completely inedible to us. Uh-huh. But we found that dehydrating them and rolling them up turns them into a rawhide, and they're great dog treats. And so we make triggerfish skin dog treats that, that we sell and Dude, kind of give away to dogs. dogs man, I bet they'd like those. Oh, man. Where do I'll, I get I'll some send, of those? I'll send you with a bag. Oh, no. Nice. Yeah, they're great. Oh, I'm going to be. They're going to be. I got a German Shepherd, and she loves them. They're happy. You know, you, you can walk out the door for five minutes, you know, and your dog. Oh, you come back, and your dog. Like, if I come best. out, if I come back after like a, a day and a half, and I have freaking. Oh, oh they're, they're going to be. Oh, my gosh. That's freaking cool. So. Okay, let me. I do have a question. This is just self-education, uh, lack of knowledge about this stuff. But you hear about fish and mercury. Mm-hmm. That's all I know. Fish, mercury, bad. Like what? What is? Tell me about that. So there's been some recent research showing that uh, their initial estimates of mercury levels in fish and how it affects your body were, were incorrect. Okay. Um, and maybe it's not as bad as. Yeah, well, I'm always skeptical of that thought. stuff when you hear that because there's so much fear uh, spread around yeah. uh, and, and all that. So that's why I was asking. It, it is mainly present in large predatory fish. And so tuna, okay. tilefish, really predatory bottom feeders or open water fish. Predatory bottom um, feeders. Okay. Are, are really going to be the, the highest in mercury. Okay. Uh, your inshore fish, your mullet, for example. Yeah. Um, very, very low mercury. Okay. Um, and then very high omega-3 fats. So typically the reasons you would want to eat for, for health reasons, fatty offshore predatory fish would be for the omega-3 fat content. Uh-huh. Um, but you can find best of both worlds in a fish like mullet. Okay. Uh, where high in omega-3s, very low in mercury. Got it. Got it. Yeah, omega-3s, man. Yeah, they're great for you. I don't eat enough fish. I take I take omega-3. I get like the uh, liquid omega-3 mm-hmm. at Earth Fair or yeah. Whole Foods or whatever. It's expensive. Right? Yeah. Carlson's. Yep, and that's typically all pulled from sardines and mullet fish mm-hmm. and small, yeah, uh, oily think, fish, yep, yeah. where, where you get a lot of omega three fats, but you can get that naturally by 
eating fish. Is that what anchovies are? Mm-hmm. I've never eaten anchovies. I've eaten almost everything. I don't like mayonnaise, and I've never had anchovies. That's really? I need to try. Not but even Dukes? Can't eat can't do it. Can't, I can't. hear you. I don't. I mean, like I, I mean, I even remember eating a Brussels sprout. I didn't even. I was like real picky. Yeah. I didn't eat vegetables. My mom made me eat Brussels sprouts, and I threw up and stuff. And I was like, I'll never be able to eat Brussels sprouts. I can eat those now just fine. Yeah. Like mayonnaise, man. Just I can't, can't do it. Do it. I mean, it's ridiculous too. I mean, I grew up in North Carolina. Uh-huh. Like it's you know we threw mayonnaise on everything. Yeah. But oh yeah. I was always that kid. You know, I'd go somewhere. They're like, we made sandwiches for lunch. I'm like. I'm not hungry. No, I'm good. <laughs> Are you sure? <laughs> <laughs> I'm fucking eating that. <laughs> Weird. Uh, that and anchovies. So anchovies are a like small oily fish too. Yeah. A lot of omega threes. Yeah. A lot of right. omega threes. Small. Tons of tons of oil. Uh, anchovies, sardines, finger mullets, striped mullet, jumping mullet. Mm. Um, all of those fish. Uh, Manhattan are typically caught and pressed and used for omega threes. Which, if you think about, you know, the, the bigger picture and carbon footprint, it's much more viable to just eat the fish in its yeah. natural state right. than to take it and ship it all over the world yep. to press it in these refineries yep. and in these big factories, creating all these emissions, to then just give you this capsulated form <laughs> right. of this fish that you could have eaten three months ago when it was fresh. That's the way to do it. Do you have to use, okay, when you're dry aging this stuff, are you like are you using salt? Is that what? Do you um, so we we do when we cure, we yeah. do use uh, salt, salt and sugar and spices. Mm-hmm. Um, for dry aging, I use a uh, salt water solution. Okay. Um, we've kind of been able to dial that in. It's a ten percent salt uh, by volume of the water, and I basically mist the fish down and wipe them down pretty much daily to make sure that they're we're promoting good bacterial growth, not any negative bacterial growth really making sure that we're taking care of those species because you know it's it's a science and we've been able to work on this now for a little bit over a year and so i'm excited to to finally now with the restaurant getting open actually start showcasing this because up until now we've been working on this and just eating it and testing it internally good bacterial growth so you have with any charcuterie or dry aging you have good bacterial growth which is a, a white um a white bacteria and you don't really want any other color black green yellow blue bacteria yeah, yeah. all bad okay but you do want um to promote the, this good and healthy bacterial growth which basically breaks down the en- enzymes and the proteins concentrates flavor removes moisture uh the other thing that we're looking for is mo- is weight loss mm. and the weight loss is coming from moisture our typical target range is anywhere between 30 and 35 percent weight loss and that's when we kind of know that it's ready. You also want to look at pH levels. Um, five is kind of where you're looking for. You don't want it to be too acidic or too basic, and you're kind of shooting right right for the middle. Mm. Man, I just had that food in my mouth. Sorry, watering <laughs> and listening to all this stuff. I'm serious, man. I really like. I was wondering about. I like. I like salty stuff. Yeah. I'm not. Damn, I'm not. I eat a lot of salt. I'm not worried about salt. I think the lack of potassium is really the problem. It's not the high salt. It's yeah. the lack of potassium if you have, like, blood pressure stuff yep. or whatever. But at least that's my, that's my theory these days. Yeah, you got to try out some of the charcuterie. We're doing pastrami's and bacon and ham. You got some? Oh, yeah. I'll, I'll yeah. try. Oh, yeah. Yeah, yeah we'll, we'll, we got some chorizo down there, too. We'll, we'll okay. go down after this podcast and do, do a little it. sample. Let's do it, man. Let's do it now. This is fun. I really appreciate you doing this. Yeah, I really course, do, man. man. I've learned Thank a Thank you for reaching ton out. from you today. Eric. I Thank mean, you. really have. Uh, I appreciate it. Very kind with your time. 
you are uh, clearly authentically just passionate about what you do, man. You ooze just knowledge and awareness and uh, just very thankful I had this opportunity. Thank you. Glad to serve y'all, man. We're so excited to serve folks like y'all. I mean, All we right. really are. You guys just it. like, there's nothing better than serving a group of people like you and your colleagues. Thank you very much. And, yeah, man. You know, it's, uh, it's awesome. I appreciate you reaching out and, and everything. Honestly, Schedule Fly does. It's, Schedule Fly has turned into a great platform for us to communicate now that we've grown our team so so big. <laughs> yeah, you, if uh, I didn't need it, six people, to but everybody. God, yeah, yeah, six people text message suffice. Now, group now text it's not quite, not quite enough. Yeah, man. Well, um, we're, uh, we're thrilled. I appreciate it, man. Awesome. All right, y'all. Cool. That's a wrap. Thanks. We'll have another one soon.